Good afternoon, everyone. My name is Jim Doyle. I'm President of Business Ford. Thank you for joining us for today's webinar. Um, I'll be moderating our conversation, and currently all lines are in listen-only mode. We're very pleased to welcome Congressman John Delaney from Maryland and Wayne Best, the Chief Economist at Visa. They're here to discuss the 2016 GDP estimate released by the Commerce Department this morning. They'll also provide some analysis on consumer confidence, spending, and jobs, and how this might affect the fundamentals of the economy moving forward in 2017. This will be an interactive briefing, so after their presentation, we'll have time for questions. For those of you who are new to our programming, Business Ford organizes local roundtables, Washington fly-ins, conference calls, webinars, and media trainings for more than 100,000 business leaders across America. At these briefings, entrepreneurs, investors, small business owners, and executives get the chance to brief policymakers on issues affecting their businesses and advise them on how Washington can work with business to accelerate our economy. Today, more than 550 senior administration officials, members of Congress, governors, and mayors have participated in our programming. This is all thanks to the support of more than 60 of America's largest and most respected companies. Before we get started, I need to cover two housekeeping items. First, as part of the email confirmation you received uh, for this event, it says Open Visual Interface. Click on that link to view today's presentation. Uh, if you haven't done that or you don't have the, inv uh, the invitation in front of you, just go to businessfwd.org. Uh, on the home page, you'll see a post for today's event. Just click on the post, and you'll be able to uh, see the presentation. Uh, as I mentioned, there will be time for questions and comments. You can participate in two ways. You can press 1 on your dial pad at any time to be entered into the queue to ask your question live, or you can email it to info at businessfwd.org, and I'll read it aloud. Uh, again, you can just press 1 on your dial pad to enter the queue, or email it to info at businessfwd.org. Uh, when you send your email, please include your name, business, and location, uh, and we'll be sure to include that. Finally, this call is on the record, and there may be reporters present. With that, let's get started. Um, I'm going to go very quickly through the top-line results, and then uh, we'll be uh, talking to Congressman uh, Delaney about uh, trade, housing, uh, labor, and business investment aspects of the numbers. Um, uh, Commerce Department has announced that the economy grew 1.9% in the final quarter of 2016. It grew 1.6% for the year. Uh, this is slightly uh, below uh, uh, most estimates um, uh, and is attributed uh, generally to a uh, decline in uh, exports um, in the final quarter. Uh, the growth was driven by consumer spending, home building, business investment, um, and uh, uh, the business investment was largely driven by uh, spending on uh, IP and R&D. Uh, if you look to uh, the, the next slide, uh, contributions to GDP growth, uh, or specific numbers, we'll be getting back to those when we talked with congressmen. Uh, consumer spending increased 2.7% uh, for the year and 2.5% for the quarter. Um, this is driven largely by growth in durable goods purchases, which increased by about 10.9%. This, of course, represents about two-thirds of the overall economic activity. Uh, business investment grew by 2.4% in Q4. This is the third straight month of increases. Uh, again, le less investment in structural uh, and buildings, but more in IP and R&D. Uh, and non-residential investment trends, uh, what we've seen is a decrease in construction and equipment and, again, an increase in IP products. With housing, after two down qu quarters, uh, uh, housing grew at 10.2% annualized rate. Um, 
Uh, one of the big questions that uh, uh, most people are asking is uh, how higher interest rates might affect that in 2017. And then finally, exports. Um, this was the largest trade-related uh, drag on overall growth since the second quarter of 2010, 4.3% uh, um, decrease uh, or negative uh, uh, change. Um, and uh, um, uh, one of the questions that uh, uh, we might want to talk about is the extent to which a strong dollar had an impact on that. So, so Congressman, let's, let's start with exports and then move back. Um, Big drop in exports, some of it driven by uh, changes um, in uh, soybean production from third quarter to fourth quarter, but what do you think this says about the larger debate going on in trade, and uh, what should we expect uh, uh, in two th from in 2017? Uh, okay, thanks, Jim. I mean, look, I think you hit the nail on the head. It, it says a lot about the debate. It probably doesn't say quite as much about substance. <laughs> you know, while these overall while these overall numbers are less than projections, I thought they were generally fine, and they're slightly above the trend line. And as you know, these numbers can move around quarter to quarter quite a bit, based on specific factors. So I don't read anything into the trade number uh, specifically, but it clearly will fuel the political debate here in Washington about what trade policies to put in place. And hopefully they don't fuel it in a way that puts us in a bad place uh, from a trade perspective. So, that, you know, that's my view uh, as to how it will affect. I mean, normally when I, was, when I was thinking about growth in 2017 and 2018, I would have thought there would have been three factors to consider, overall confidence, fiscal policy, and interest rates. But now, obviously, we have a fourth with trade policy. Uh, and... Uh, you know, I worry that the, you know, I worry about two things. One, that we could actually pursue a bad trade policy. I tend to be more of a free trade person myself, uh, and some of the proposals that are coming out, uh, I view as quite concerning. But secondly, I think that this trade debate could distract from an opportunity to do some constructive fiscal policy, um, and uh, that would be uh, unfortunate. So, so that's kind of my view of the trade aspect of it. Mm -hmm. And what about housing? Uh, you know, how much should we be worried about rates going up, and uh, you know, what could we be doing from a policy aspect to uh, to support the industry? So, um, obviously, rising interest rates generally hurt the housing market because they make it less affordable for people. Although I will say, for some period of time, I, I, I've had a view, and Wayne could have better insight into this, is that some increase in rates is actually positive because it gives people the perception that we're returning to an era of kind of normal economic activity. You know, we're still living with a hangover from 08, maybe not uh, substantively as much as we are emotionally. And, um, you know, consumer and investor confidence is really important. It feels like consumer and investor confidence is pretty good right now. Some modest uptick of rates could encourage uh, both businesses and, and consumers to execute on kind of investments that they wouldn't have, that they've been still reluctant to do. But clearly, uh, too much rate headwinds will affect the housing market. We, we have a housing finance market that we have not really reformed, despite a, a, a kind of a screaming need to reform it since the crisis. Uh, and, you know, I think there's some opportunity if we can have smart targeted regulatory relief in, in the banking sector that could allow banks to be slightly more forward-leaning on mortgage lending that's not tied to government-guaranteed programs. I think that could offset some of the uh, 
some of the headwinds of interest rates. But, you know, there is an opportunity to do some housing finance reform around the GSEs, meaning Fannie and Freddie Mac, which still basically operate the same way they did before, that I think could be smart. But this, this residential investment number, uh, again, these numbers move around a lot quarter to quarter, so it's hard to read anything into it, although it is positive, uh, clearly. And I think there's the opportunity for more household formation across the next several years is good, provided we don't do something dumb on immigration, uh, because I think there has been a lot of people holding back on housing purchases, living with families, uh, renters, et cetera. So I, I would expect that we could see a pretty good year, couple years for housing. And do you think GSE reform is something that uh, might happen in the next Congress, this Congress? I think, you know, I think we have an opportunity for it. Um, you know, the, the thing about GSE reform, it's, it's, it's pretty consequential in the long term, but it tends not to be that impactful in the short term, So it, that, that which makes it uh, the kind of thing you don't do if you're trying to get headlines right away. But uh, I think there's a growing sense that we have neglected fixing uh, these uh, Fannie and Freddie, and there's a bunch of bipartisan ways to do it, including one that I'm leading, um, so I think there are, uh, I think, yeah, I think the chances of GSE reform have, inc have improved. You talked about uh, fiscal policy. Do you, do you see that having a bigger impact on business investment or consumer spending? What, 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 what do you have in mind? So the fiscal, the, the two areas of fiscal policy, and, and I actually think they're linked, are tax reform and infrastructure. Um, and I think t tax reform could clearly have a positive impact on business investment, and I think infrastructure could have a positive impact on, uh, you know, demand, right, because I think it will be very stimulative for the labor market. So, uh, you know, I'm, I'm – uh, this is – this area of fiscal policy, in other words, linking tax reform and infrastructure together has been my top priority since I've been in the Congress. I think there's a big deal to do there, mostly around international tax reform, um, in other words, creating ways for all that money overseas to come back to the U.S. and tying that to a national infrastructure program. I think that is the single best opportunity the United States has to drive economic growth. Uh, I think that could be derailed through overly aggressive tax reform or through some of these trade debates, uh, which would be unfortunate. I mean, the, the, the counterweight to this fiscal policy is the deficit and debt which is projected to grow, uh, and, you know, I think the, uh, there is a very fiscally conservative s slice of the Congress that will be very resistant to fiscal policy uh, that increases the deficit and debt. And the kind of things we're hearing coming out of the administration will likely result in higher deficits and debt, which, if done right, could be the right thing to do in the short term, but that will be the headwind on getting it done. Uh, and finally, before we go move on to jobs, just on investment, um, we've heard from a lot of people who participate in our programming that they see a, that there was a lot of capital on the sidelines uh, that might be coming uh, into the market now because of uh, 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 President Trump. Um, what do you think? What, what does that look like, and which which sectors do you think it would affect most? Well, look, I think where the obviously the market's done well since the election. And I think that's in anticipation of, of regulatory relief, uh, which we need some of, quite frankly. Um, and it's also, a, uh, you know, a bet that there'll be some tax reform, mostly corporate tax reform, which would clearly be good for the bottom lines of a lot of American companies. So based on the odds of those two things happening and going up, 
the market reaction is, you know, probably pretty logical. Uh, I, I don't know if it's a, a major secular change in, in people's capital allocation strategies, but there is de definitely a bullishness to the market. I mean, I think in terms of where there's an opportunity for a lot more U.S. investment is in fixing our international tax system, because right now U.S. corporations hold more cash overseas than they do in the United States. I think the number is up to $2.5 trillion. So the first time in our company's history, if you look at all the big companies in the U.S., they've got more cash sitting overseas than they do in the U.S. And, you know, the money's quote, not trapped, right? They legally can bring it back, but they're subject to some very uh, unattractive tax policies if they bring it back. So we, we have to fix that system. It's one of the areas I've been a leader on in the Congress to allow that money to repatriate is the term that's used. And, and if we were to fix that system, not all that $2.5 trillion would come back to the United States because a lot of companies need money overseas for all kinds of things they're doing. But if you look at prior uh, situations where we had the same dynamic and we made a fix to the system, you see situations where 30% of that money could come back to the United States. Uh, and that would obviously, you know, if you're talking about six, seven, eight hundred billion dollars of money being repatriated to the United States, no matter what the corporations do with the money, whether they invest, whether they buy back their stock, whether they make dividends, that's all very, very stimulative to the U.S. economy. So I think that's really the biggest opportunity to get more money invested in the U.S. economy which is to get the money that's owned by U.S. corporations back to the United States. So, uh, Wayne, your, your presentation begins by focusing on jobs. Uh, I'd like to just pivot to, uh, to that now, if, if it's okay with you. Um, can you walk us through what you think is going to happen to job growth? Yeah, so, you know, I think we look at what's been happening with the consumer in terms of the outlook that you just described, in well, in terms of the data that just uh, ended in 2016. And one of the strong areas, of course, has continued to be this consumer, uh, the irrepressible consumer. Yeah, they're not spending at the levels that we saw prior to the recession when everyone was using their house as an ATM machine, uh, but they are still spending. And if we look at the reasons behind that, we really identified three major tailwinds behind the consumer right now. And the first one, of course, is related to jobs. Job growth is still holding up quite well. Um, and if we look at uh, the latest numbers, you know, we have 5.52 million job openings in this country and only 1.3 people or unemployed people looking for every one of those jobs. That 1.3 number ties it to the lowest that we've seen on record with data going back to 2001. So we've got a lot of jobs, and why isn't we able to fill them? Well, you know, I'm going to go ahead and say it. I blame the baby boomers on the phone call. You know, you told your kids, I want you to go into college and do something you're interested in. Well, out of those 5.52 million job openings, I think there's 10 of them for fine art history majors. And no offense to fine art history majors, but we need architects and engineers and programmers and app developers. Those are the kinds of jobs that we need in this uh, current economy. Uh, we're expecting about 150,000 jobs to be created in the first half of 2017, but that will slow to around 120,000 jobs in the second half of 17. Those numbers may be goosed up a little bit in terms of some of the expected changes in infrastructure spending and other categories uh, uh, that are being uh, discussed of late. But again, looking at the jobs numbers, you know, essentially everyone's employed. Uh, well, the unemployment rate now down to 4.7%. We're very near full employment and we'll clearly hit that in 2017. 
Now, with along with that, with the tailwind of the job growth still holding up, uh, wages are climbing and uh, wages are continuing to rise. No surprise there, right? With fewer jobs available, uh, or fewer people available to fill those jobs, um, people are, or companies are having to pay more. And so we see that job growth go up uh, in terms of wages. What's interesting is where those wages really climbing is not for the people that are staying in their jobs, and I should mention that HR people kind of hate this slide, uh, but those that are switching jobs. I mean, you feel confident enough now uh, that the economy is performing well, uh, that you're likely to be able to move to another job and receive another job, and as a result, employers are paying more for those. So the job switchers are actually seeing a higher wage level as we see overall. And frankly, again, for an overall economy, that's positive. We, we've been really remiss since, as you can see in this chart, since the recession, since 2014, a very, very low wage growth. Well, that's changing now. And that is that really strong tailwind behind the consumer. Everybody's working and they're earning more money. If we go to the next slide in terms of the second big tailwind, obviously people are feeling really confident. And they're feeling confident, frankly, because of the fact that they're working. If you're working, your family's working, your friends are working, your neighbors are working, you know, you end up starting to feel more and more confident. You feel more like that I'm not likely to lose my job. And as a result of that, my confidence starts to increase. And while confidence doesn't necessarily lead the economy, uh, it tends to follow it or it would be an expression of what's happening in the current economy, we may actually see some of these, and I'll use the word animal spirits, actually showing some additional improvement in terms of spending as we go into 2017. So confidence is doing well. The University of Michigan's number just came out today, uh, also back to high, very, very high levels that we haven't seen for, for quite some period of time. Uh, on the next part of this slide here, if we can build that, um, you know, if you're feeling confident, of course, then your desire or requirement to save more starts to come down a little bit. And that's important in terms of the consumer once again, because a one percentage point change in the savings rate amounts to $1 billion of additional spending. Um, excuse me, $100 billion. Uh, so it is very significant. The latest savings rate data coming out uh, showed the savings rate ticking down just a little bit to 5.6%. So definitely more confident consumers, feeling more comfortable, all of that's going to be important in terms of adequate and having adequate savings to support the spending uh, with their strong job gains. This is tailwind number two. And finally, the third tailwind is related to the wealth effect. Uh, as Congressman Delaney talked about with regards to what's happening in the stock market, but also in, in homes. And home equity as a percent of real estate assets is now back to where it was prior to the recession. Yes, we still have several million homes that are still underwater in terms of their mortgage being higher than what their home is worth. But this has corrected itself in most areas of this country. And fee people are starting to feel a little better about that. What's important is that the wealth effect has actually shifted from where it was prior to the recession. You know, prior to the recession, again, everyone using their house as an ATM machine, it was easy to access money from your house from refinancings, cash out refinancings, as well as home equity credit lines. And that was a large portion of the wealth effect that we saw. And a much smaller portion prior to the recession was from stock wealth. Well, the latest research shows that that has basically flipped on end. People now don't expect their home to be uh, this big money machine, 
Uh, and frankly, they shouldn't. You know, a home is a place to live, not necessarily something to extract value from. Uh, if it happens, that's great. But what we're seeing is that shift in wealth effect coming from the stock market side. And that's certainly been very positive. If we continue to build on this slide, the nominal household net worth, you know, continues to climb to very high levels. And the question, and that's a both of obviously a function of home prices continuing to rise. The latest data shows that home prices are up, I believe, 7.2% year over year. Uh, and they've been growing north of 5.5% on a compounded annual growth rate for the last five years. So houses are doing well. Uh, and the reason why housing is doing so well, uh, coupling with the comments that uh, the congressman made, is that we just don't have enough of them. The supply of homes is still too small, and we have a very small inventory of homes available, something like three, 3.6 months worth of supply, some of the lowest numbers we've seen. We're just not building homes fast enough. And that causes, um, you know, when you don't have enough of something, that causes the price to basically go up. Now, this nominal net worth, I put a couple notes on there. Obviously, you know, we see some things that happen when this number continues to rise. We saw the dot-com bust, of course, back in 2000 when everybody thought they would get rich on cement.com. Um, and then, of course, the housing bust. And the question is, is this bubble getting pretty high now? Is this a new bubble that's actually forming? And maybe it's not a bubble, but maybe more of a, we may see a release of some of the, the air out of the balloon. Um, as the stock market has uh, gained new highs, as even as of the last day or so, um, and uh, relative to more traditional metrics of the, the price-earnings ratio of the overall market. Uh, and of course, that housing at levels at these levels are also a bit of a concern, especially when we look at isolated areas in this country, and it's actually not that isolated, it's happening many places, where people are overbidding on the price of a home to buy it. It's very prevalent in the peninsula or in the San Francisco Bay Area, but it's happening in Omaha and Philadelphia and parts of Florida, all over the United States. People are overbidding on homes to be able to land that home. And again, big reason why is because there's not enough supply. So I do say, you know, note of caution here with regards to these levels of net worth that we may see a little bit of a correction over the next couple of years um, and to be prepared for that. So those are three very strong tailwinds behind the consumer as we see it right now. And uh, they're important to keep in mind. Now, what do we expect for those tailwinds in terms of changes? You know, job growth, again, we still expect to continue to hold up. The economy has continued to perform well. Wages are absolutely rising, and that's creating additional money in consumers' hands. Um, consumers are certainly confident. We expect that to continue, uh, absent some other outside shock and this wealth effect outside, again, what will happen potentially with the stock market as we go forward. So those are the three tailwinds behind consumers. I see it. Let me uh, do another slight pivot here before we uh, take some more questions um, related to what happened in the holiday season. You know, we've got some good data, and uh, the data allows us the ability to look at the spending on all forms of payment uh, using our data uh, through an algorithm that we've developed over 10 years ago. And we share this data with the uh, Census Bureau for purposes of the March survey. Um, but when we look at our data uh, and we look at what's been happening in the holiday season, uh, first off, let's look at what the definition of holiday spending is, because that's probably the biggest reason for differences in numbers as of what's included and what's not included. 
we take a very traditional definition of looking at the spending of November through December. You know, in the past it used to be Black Friday through Christmas, but we obviously are recognizing now that Black Friday is actually held before Black Friday when many retailers decided to hold big sales weeks before uh, the official Black Friday. And we're also including retail sales, less autos, gas, and restaurants. Those are generally not part of the holiday definition. And if we look at the data from November and December, uh, that came out to about 4.8% growth in spending on all forms of payment. That was the highest growth that we'd seen in five years. Now, this is a little bit at odds with the data that you're hearing from the government, from the March survey, which had reported a slightly lower number, including from the National Retail Federation, which uses those figures. Um, our data is based on 40 million accounts and uh, going through this algorithm. And we will fully expect revisions in the government's data when they start to go through their multiple revisions over the next several months and frankly over the next year or so. One of the areas that we saw, so that was a positive season. Consumers are feeling confident. Stock market was seeing new highs in December and people indeed spent. Now there has been some characterization of the, of, of the spending. It's a little bit different than what we've seen in the past as a matter of reference. People are spending earlier in the holiday season than previously seen. Survey work showed that millennials, by the time Cyber Monday came around, were essentially done with their holiday shopping. And so we see it happening earlier and earlier than we've seen in previous periods. And let's not forget the fact that using uh, e-commerce related transactions, buying things online and on your phone continue to be very prevalent and relevant in this holiday season. We estimated about 18% growth in e-commerce activity. It was actually closer to 19% according to our data. And you can see that's up from 14% in 2015. And approximately almost 50%, almost half of all holiday e-commerce uh, that we saw was in November. So that's up slightly, again, from this aspect of consumers spending a little bit earlier in the cycle uh, of the overall holiday period. Oh yeah, there's still the procrastinators out there that will wait to the last weekend prior to the Christmas holiday itself. Um, but it was uh, indeed um, advanced a little earlier in the season overall. And finally, on the last slide, to give a nice characterization for how it looks across the United States, that same holiday retail spending, retail sales, less autos, gas, and restaurants, looking at it for those two months, November and December combined on a year-over-year -year basis, that 4.8% average, you can see how this weathered across the United States in terms of the spending on holiday that we saw overall. And you can see the upper part of the Midwest was certainly impacted, and very much a lot of this is related to the energy picture. What we're seeing in terms of the, um, uh, the areas of the country that were impacted by lower energy prices, some of the job losses that occurred in those particular states and regions of this country, very much impacting some of the outlook for the holiday uh, in holiday spending and the other areas of the country that were actually performing quite well. So that gives you a perspective kind of on the consumer, that important two-thirds of this economy. What are those tailwinds behind the consumer? What's happening next? And also to give a little bit of a flavor based on our real-time data of what's happening with holiday spending. Um, more of this information on our holiday spending and other uh, items are available on our website. This is new since the last time I spoke on this call, visa.com slash econometric insights, and you'll see a number of different insight reports that we do as we continue to delve into the consumer itself and to understand better what they're doing and what they're likely to do next.
Jim, I'll turn it back to you. Yeah, thank you very much, Wayne. I appreciate it. Uh, so if you'd uh, like to ask a question, press 1 on your dial pad and you'll be put into the queue or just uh, send us the question by email at info at businessfwd.org. Uh, our first question is by email. It is from Michael Simmons in Detroit, Michigan. His question relates to inflation. Uh, Congressman, uh, perhaps we'll start with you. Um, uh, estimates of inflation are, are around 2% for the year. Um, do you think um, uh, the, the changes in trade policy could affect that, specifically um, the border, I'm sorry, uh, the, the, border, the border tax adjustment policies? Uh, yeah, I, I mean, I think that uh, certainly, I mean, I, I can't comment on whether that inflation number is accurate or not, obviously. I think we're going to enter into a period of some inflation. I think Fed, the Fed has reported that. I think a lot of the information uh, that we just went over um, in terms of the strength in the economy, the strength in the labor market, rising pay uh, will lead towards, uh, you know, some probably healthy reflation, if you will. But clearly some of these border proposals, I mean, if you just deconstruct the proposal around Mexico, the 20% tariff around Mexico, that will obviously be directly translated to the consumer uh, and cause an increase in consumer goods. Uh, the border adjustment tax uh, that has been proposed, which is a more comprehensive approach, if, it's, uh, if the revenues are used for corporate tax reductions only, uh, you could see how that would also uh, lead to uh, inflation in the short term. So, yeah, I think, as I said earlier, I, I, I would have thought what we were talking about in 2017 is fiscal policy, regulatory relief, uh, and interest rates principally, but now trade is on the uh, clearly on the agenda, and I think it could translate into some inflationary uh, uh, characteristics. Uh, we have a, a question from Elizabeth Goldsmith from Tallahassee, Florida. Uh, Elizabeth, you are live on the line. Oh, thank you. Um, I just got back from the International Builders Show, 110,000 people there. And where they say they need people, 4 million people, is in the skilled trades. And I think, and they like community college education. So I think that's the direction to go. There's lots of jobs, but people aren't going into the skilled uh, construction trade. Do you have a comment on that? Yeah, this is Wayne Best. Uh, yeah, I think that's my, my point is the fact is we're not building enough homes because we don't have enough construction workers. And why is that? Well, when we built all the homes prior to the recession, uh, many people were in the construction industry, very, very gainfully employed. And then when the housing bust occurred, of course, people lost their jobs in that particular area. And there was clearly no houses that were going to be built for quite some time. They were overbuilt. Well, now we've caught up to that, and again, we're back to a supply shortage, but all of those construction workers that were working in that field prior to that, many of them have either retired or have gone on to do something different. Uh, you can recognize how important this is just by anybody on the phone that has to have something done at their house. If you're having any kind of mini project done, you can see how difficult it is to even get a contractor to come to your house. So yes, I think there is a shortage uh, of skilled workers especially in the area of construction that would be very beneficial to continuing to move the housing industry forward. Uh, Congressman, anything to add? No, I mean, I think, he, I think Wayne, um, 
you know, said it uh, perfectly. Um, and there's other, you know, there's other dynamics in the housing industry also. I think there's psychological issues, et cetera, that are playing it out. But, uh, you know, the big issue for the housing industry is obviously population growth. And, you know, I think we tend to underestimate as a country how beneficial it is for our economy to have a, uh, a population that is steadily growing, and nothing correlates more strongly with strength in the housing market than that. Right. Um, uh, our next question is uh, from William Smith in New York. Uh, how much of an impact will a potential tax cut have on discretionary spending and will the potential rise in taxable revenues offset lost income tax revenues? Uh, so I'll, I'll start with that. Um, you know, it all, it, it all depends how the tax cut is done, obviously. If it's a real middle class tax break, something that I'm directionally supportive of, you could see that translating into, you know, higher consumer spending because you know, we're, we're still not the kind of savers uh, we were historically. And so I think a decent amount of that money uh, will be passed on. I mean, it's the same thing that's really happened with energy. I mean, the reduction in energy prices really translated directly to a pretty good-sized middle-class tax cut. And I think you see that translated into other consumer spending. So I, I think it will do that. I mean, I think there are some tax cuts. Uh, I think if capital gains taxes were cut dramatically, I think if taxes on wealthier Americans were cut dramatically, I see that not contributing uh, much to consumer discretionary spending, and I see that as being driving pretty big deficits because I think, unlike when Ronald Reagan came into office and these marginal tax rates were very, very high, and cutting them really did change behavior, I'm not convinced at all that at the level of capital gains tax that we have now and the tax rates on wealthier Americans that we have now, that there is really a disincentive for people to invest based on tax rates. So I tend to think tax cuts focused on um, uh, capital gains and wealthier Americans will just drive uh, greater deficits and not really translate into economic growth. I think, and then the third category is corporate tax rates. I mean, I, I think it's pretty clear that U.S. corporate tax rates are at the high end of our competitive um, of our competitive economies or the, econ the economies we compete with. And I think bringing those rates down, I don't think they have to come down to 15%, which is what I've heard uh, President Trump talk about, because that would put us kind of in the lower end of our competitors. But I think the, the prior talk, which was to get them into the 25, 28% range, made some sense, particularly if it came with the reduction of, of certain uh, tax breaks that go with that so that it was paid for. But I'll say that I do think the international tax system is the most troubling in terms of creating behavior that does not contribute to U.S. economic growth. Uh, Wayne, anything to add to that? I think the, uh, uh, the congressman covered that well. I will mention again, it, a lot of, it, the proof is in the details, right? And so understanding what the personal tax cut will look like uh, by income level will be very important in terms of modeling and looking at what the impact is on overall levels of consumption in this country. The marginal propensity to consume by lower income households, lower and middle income households is generally higher, so they will likely spend those monies that they receive in that tax cut. Again, very positive for the economy overall uh, as we move forward in 17 and 18. Uh, next question is from uh, William Cunningham in Washington, D.C. Question is, what will the projected impact of Trump's policies on women and minority, what will be the projected impact of Trump's policies on women and minority companies? 
Um, Congressman? Well, women and minority-owned businesses, uh, as it relates to contracting with the federal government, and since the question came from someone from the Washington, D.C. area, maybe there's some chance uh, it's related to that subset of, of kind of questions. I don't think we've seen any specific proposals around changes to federal contracting uh, policies, uh, either in terms of uh, the various parts of government that contract directly with, with uh, contractors, or with SBA lending programs, which is also a subset of this where there's uh, uh, programs designed. So, um, you know, I think there's a, uh, there's an, you know, that there, there's a lot of questions there, uh, but we don't really have any specifics. Obviously, the immigration debate plays into this to some extent as well, um, and uh, you know that's going to play out uh, in ways. Uh, I was hopeful that, that this. Congress and, and the new administration would be working on comprehensive immigration reform, which I think is very stimulative to, to the economy and also potentially helpful to minority and women-owned businesses. But it doesn't seem like that's going to be a priority. The priority is going to be border security. Um, so I just think there's a lot of questions right now about some of those policies. And Wayne? Nothing to add there. Okay. Uh, we have a, 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 a somewhat related question uh, from uh, Aurora McDonald uh, from Peachtree, Georgia. Uh, the large number of home construction that occurred in the early 2000s was done by foreign workers. A large majority were undocumented workers, many who chose to remain in the U.S. after the housing bubble burst. With the need for new housing construction and low numbers of skilled trade workers, what do you foresee the administration doing in terms of retaining foreign workers to meet the U.S. housing needs and new construction? Well, I'll start and, then, and I'll let Wayne then provide a more intelligent answer. But um, <laughs> I would say that, look, at, I, I, in the prior question, I, I, I answered by saying what we should be looking at is comprehensive immigration reform, which involves several things. It involves border securities, which uh, we need to be addressing. It involves various visa programs to allow uh, workers to come here or people from foreign countries who get educated here to stay here. Uh, and then it involves dealing with the estimated 11 to 13 million uh, undocumented residents uh, in this country. And that's really the group that you're focusing on. Clearly, uh, there was proposals from the president earlier in his campaign where he wanted to deport these people which I think is both uh, practically impossible uh, against our values and would come at an extraordinary cost to the U.S. economy, both in terms of doing it and in terms of taking these workers out of the workforce. What we should be doing is something similar to what the Senate agreed to several years ago in, in its comprehensive immigration plan that passed on a bipartisan basis in the Senate, and that is address all these three categories. And as it relates to the 11 to 13 million undocumented uh, residents, it created a pathway to citizenship across a very long period of time. But it allowed these people to stay in the workforce where they are clearly contributing to positive US economic growth, both in terms of the jobs they do in our economy and the, uh, the, their consumer spending demands uh, and taxes that they pay. 
So, uh, you know, that's my broad view on the topic. Again, I think the current administration is one to focus on the border security issue. Uh, you know, I'm hopeful that can morph into more broader comprehensive immigration reform. Yeah, I, my, I would basically echo what the congressman said on that. I mean, I think the, uh, uh, you know, we need jobs of all types in this country, whether it be chefs or cooks or agriculture or construction. Uh, as well as some of the high-end jobs, too, with uh, thinking about broader immigration reform in terms of H-1B allowance and those types of things, uh, especially with some of the holes that we have in the tech industry right now or continue to have of those 5.52 million job openings. Uh, so, um, you know, boosting the overall levels of growth of jobs, uh, the, the spending associated with those and the taxes that will be collected is certainly positive for America. Thank you. Uh, that's all the time we have for today. Uh, thank you all for joining us. Uh, please join us again next Wednesday for a conference call with uh, United States Senator Ron Wyden from Oregon. He'll be, he's the ranking man, uh, member of the Senate Finance Committee, and he'll be discussing the future of health care and health insurance in America. Uh, please check your email for a post-event survey where you can let us know what you thought of today's call. And thank you again, Congressman Delaney and Wayne uh, and everyone who, uh, for uh, joining today's call. We look forward to working with you again in the very near future. Uh, have a great day. Thank you.